Well, it's good to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, as Matt said earlier, my name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors at Redeeming Grace Church, uh, just down the road. Uh, before that, I was pastor at Sojourn Church, uh, and recently we merged together with Redeeming Grace Church to become one new church here in Fairfax. And fun story is uh, Sojourn planted our first gathering as a church, I believe it was either the same Sunday or the Sunday after uh, you guys first gathered some nine or so years ago. So it's been a joy to be uh, in ministry together. I'm grateful for your faithfulness in preaching the gospel here in Fairfax. Love this city and love the people around here. And so I'm just uh, overjoyed and thankful that there are many churches in this area that are lifting high the name of Jesus, longing to see people come to know him and follow him. So it's a joy and a pleasure for me to be here with you today and open up God's word uh, with you this morning. So before we do that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. So would you pray with me? Oh, great God, who's full of mercy and grace, God, we pray that you would give us mercy and grace today. I pray that by your spirit that you would calm and quiet our our souls, our hearts, our minds, with whatever we're bringing in this morning, whatever burdens we're bearing, whatever distractions might be present in our lives right now in this moment, God, would you just calm and quiet us before you. And by your spirit, God, I pray that you'd help us to be attentive to what you want to encourage us with this morning, what you want to challenge us with this morning in and through your word. God, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see and savor Jesus today. And God, as we do that, we pray that you'd help us to find joy in you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've been a pastor in the area for a while, but actually grew up in and around uh, Fairfax County. wasn't born here, but my family moved here when I was about four years old. And so I spent my uh, formidable years here in this area, went K through 12 in Fairfax County Public Schools and graduated a little over 20 years ago from Chantilly High School. And as 20-year anniversaries and things like that come up, we had a reunion for our 20-year graduation. And reunions are pretty common around those kinds of things, and it can be fun time to get together with old friends and spend time reconnecting with one another after long periods of time, more than a Facebook-like here and there like actually to see people face to face. And reunions really are about remembering. When you go to a reunion, you spend your time split between kind of catching up on what's going on in life right now and saying, remember when? Remember when? And I know for some of you, remembering high school is the last thing that you would like to do. For me, though, high school was a lot of fun. I, I spent those four years learning, growing, and experiencing all those different things that come. And like every teenager, it wasn't always great. There were a lot of ups and downs, challenges and difficulties, sorrow and loss and heartache, some real and some perceived. But generally, I enjoyed my four years as a Chantilly Charger. But you know, that's the nature of remembering. Depending on what part of your life it is that you're actually remembering, it could be full of joy or marked by grief and challenge. And a lot of times, it's a mixture of both. Well, today, we're going to be in Psalm 126. And what we see in this psalm is that remembering is not only normal for God's people, but necessary. Remembering is not only normal for God's people, but necessary. Life in a broken world is legitimately hard. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that, that we don't have to kind of put on a front or a face to act like things aren't difficult, that life isn't difficult at different points. 
And part of that is because just the consequences of our own sin and rebellion against God. And that brings about challenges and conflict, toil, and tiredness. And when we experience those things, all of those things can assault us and rob us of joy in our lives. And the reality is, all of us can struggle with a lack of joy, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not. And so my hope today as we walk through this psalm is that God would help you by the work of the Spirit in your life to find yourself in the everyday moments of life to remember who he is, to remember what he's done, and that by doing so, he'll restore joy in the present. So let's jump into Psalm 126, and may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I want to read our text for us, Psalm 126. The psalmist writes this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. This psalm can be broken down into two sections, which will be our two points today. Look back in remembrance and look forward in hope. Let's look at the first point. Look back in remembrance. We see this in verses 1 through 3. This psalm begins in story-like form. Look at verse 1 again. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We're immediately drawn into a time when God was doing something amazing in this relationship he had with his people. He's doing something amazing in this restoring work. Now, the restoration that's going on here is not about material wealth, but restoring from loss. And that's the basic nature of restoring. Now, we don't know exactly what the author is thinking about here, if he has some specific instance in mind, or he's just thinking about the history of God's restoration and redeeming work among his people and towards his people. But either way, as we flip through the pages of history, as we look through the story of Scripture that we see over and over and over again, God has been consistently good and restorative towards his people. And he's done so by continually pursuing them and redeeming them and providing for them. We can go back to the very beginning that even as Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God was gracious to them. He didn't just smoke them, right? He provided clothing for them and he gave them a promise of a redeemer that would come. We see it in the story of Noah, that is, all of creation is rebelling against God. God calls Noah out and provides this instructions for an ark to save his family from this coming flood. We see it in Abraham, who wasn't even looking for God, but God pursued Abraham and provided a place for him and eventually provided a child for him, even after he'd rebelled against God, trying to do things on his own. We see it in Joseph. That Joseph was arrogant and proud, and God disciplined him in the midst of that, but he sent him ahead, and what his brothers meant for evil, God used for good, to save not only Joseph and his family, but all of God's people. We see it in Moses. He sent Moses back to free his people from slavery, and in the midst of the wanderings in the desert, provide food for his people. We see it in Joshua, who he gave courage to go and lead God's people into the promised land. We see it in the return from exile, that God gathered his people back together again. Over and over and over again, we see God's redeeming and restoring work. 
But the amazing reality is that God often did this redeeming work. He often did this restoring work, not because of the people's faithfulness, but because he's faithful. He restored them in the midst of their unfaithfulness. See, this isn't about remembering past personal accomplishments, but God's past faithfulness. So whatever the situation is or was that the author is remembering, he's trying to help the people remember God's restoring work and says it was so significant for them that it made them feel like they were dreaming. Like, is this real life? Is God really doing these kinds of things? Did he really do this for us? What was the result of this restorative work? Well, the author tells us in verse 2. Look at the beginning of verse 2. It says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. The result of this restoration is laughter and joy. And we can imagine that, right? Like if we had lost something or had a damage, something valuable to us, maybe it's a, a prized piece of art or just something like a meaningful photograph that had been damaged or ruined and someone returned it to us perfectly in mint condition, man, we'd be overjoyed. We'd be celebrating. We'd be ecstatic. God's people were overwhelmed with God's kindness towards them, and they couldn't help but explode in jubilant celebration. And as a result of their celebration of joy, do you see what takes place? Their neighbors take notice. Look at the rest of verse 2. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The people around them were able to see the restorative work of God done in the lives of his people, and they testified to it. That'd be like your neighbors observing your life, and by the way, they are observing your life, and saying, man, I don't know if I believe in their God, but look what he did. Look, look what he's done. Look at the joy that these people have. There must be something going on there. Notice the nations don't just say their God or a God. They use God's proper name. In your Bible, it's capitalized Lord, all capital letters. But that's the formal name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh has done great things. They're calling out our God and saying, look what he's done amongst his people. What an amazing reality. The kindness of the Lord towards his people testifies to the nations about his character. And I love verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So the psalmist and God's people, as they rehearse this psalm, they repeat the testimony that the nations have said, as if to say, yes, indeed, yes, and amen. Yahweh has done great things for us. And because of that, we are glad. To be glad is to be overjoyed, to be full of joy. So what we see here is that joy is a, is a consequence or joy is a result of the kindness and mercy and restorative and redeeming work of God. It's a result of it. It flows from it. The author is remembering a time. He's remembering a season where God did great things and his people were full of joy. And it's good for God's people to reflect. It's good for God's people to remember his past restoring work because once again, they're in need of it, which leads to our next section, look forward in hope. Look at verse four. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. See, this time, instead of remembering God's restorative work, he's pleading for God to do it again. 
This is an honest prayer. And one of the things I love about the Psalms is that we just see honesty and emotion in real life. Like you can come before God with everything that's on your heart, everything that's on your mind. You don't have to, you know, kind of soften your request or act like God's going to be angry at you when you feel frustrated, when you're unsure of what's going on. You can come before him with all of your emotions. God is a safe person for you to process your emotions with. And cry out for mercy, cry out for help when you don't know what's going on. And we see that cry here. He's crying for restoring fortunes. Again, this is not about material wealth. He's crying out for God's mercy. We don't know the situation that they're in, but we see the seriousness of it in the second half of verse 4. It's in the second half of verse 4. He says, like streams in the Negev. Now, the Negev, or some translations say Negev, is the dry, arid region in the south of Judah. And this is how he feels right now. That it's, it's dry. He's pleading for this dryness in his life and the community to be changed, to turn to flourishing and thriving like when rain comes into this area and blossoms with life once again. When you're in a place of drought and dryness in life, man, can it suck all the joy out of life? I mean, do you ever feel that way? Maybe it's a massive challenge that you're going through or a loss you've experienced or some difficulty you're having to navigate. Or maybe it's just the wear and tear of daily life. Like you can't pinpoint one thing that feels difficult or challenging, but just kind of all of life is wearing you down. You find yourself in some situation or circumstance. You know what? It doesn't have to be catastrophic to be difficult and lead to joylessness. It could just be the mundane things. But whatever it is, now or in the future, doesn't mean that you are without hope. Look at verses 5 through 6. This is really important for us to see. The psalmist writes, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What we see in verses 5 and 6 is a declaration of hope. He says those who sow in tears because of loss, because of difficulty, because of grief over our own sin or the sin that's around us, they shall reap with shouts of joy. Not they might, but they, they will reap with shouts of joy. And he who goes out weeping in the midst of his sowing, he shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the fruit that's born out of suffering, that's born out of trial. This is a definitive statement. They recall a former time of blessing, which they're not currently experiencing, and express their longing for that blessing to return. But do you see, it's their remembering that allows them to have hope. It's their remembering that allows them to have hope for blessing to come and for joy to be restored. This isn't wishful thinking. It's deeply rooted in God his character and his nature. It's a hope they have because of who God is. That just as he's redeemed them, just as he's restored joy in the past, he will do a redeeming and restoring work of joy again, resulting in abundant joy. There's something really important for us to see in this and to learn from this. What we see in this psalm is an expression of the difference between groaning and grumbling. Between groaning and grumbling. 
See, when we find ourselves in less than favorable or desirable situations or circumstances, we can tend towards one of those two things, either grumbling or groaning. Grumbling happens when you look at your situation that you don't like and you complain to God or about God or about the situation. It can come about in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's overt in our lives. We shake our fists at God. We curse at God. Sometimes it's more subtle. Man, it's usually mixed with some anger. Grumbling is an expression, though, of discontentment. Grumbling is an expression of unbelief. Like, God, why are you doing this? I thought you were good. I thought you were faithful. I thought you cared about me. I don't even know if I can trust you anymore. Why are you letting these things happen in my life? Groaning happens when you look at your situation, and instead of complaining, you acknowledge its difficulty and the challenge of what's going on, and you cry out to God for help. You cry out to God for help. Groaning is longing for the situation to change, but not with anger at God, but striving to actually trust in God. Knowing, I don't know what you're doing, God, but I know you do. And so I'm going to trust you in the midst of it. It's fighting for contentment and joy, even when things are hard. That's what we see happening here in Psalm 126. This isn't a grumbling cry. It's a groaning cry, a collective groaning, followed by hope in the restoring work that God will do. So let me ask you this morning, when you are in the midst of difficulty, maybe a particularly challenging time in your life, do you find yourself more inclined to grumble or groan? More inclined to grumble or groan before the Lord and before others. So I think Psalm 126 is instructive for us. It's helpful for us today because we see a pattern in it that's couched in the fact of what this psalm is in the life of God's people. This is a psalm of ascent. probably says that in the beginning of the text for you. It's a song of ascent. These are psalms or songs that were sung not just once by God's people, but over and over and over again by God's people. As they journeyed to the temple year after year, they would sing this collection of songs, these kind of songs for sojourning as they were on this journey to the temple. And so this psalm was written certainly at a particular time by a particular person for a particular situation. But I love that this this song that they sing over and over again because it gives us a pattern. It gives us a pattern that's consistent with our our own ongoing experience in this life. See, this psalm is about real life because real life is full of both weeping and laughter, grief and joy. So they needed to sing this song on repeat because their experience of their lives is a consistent fight for joy. The same thing's true for you. same thing's true for me. This means that this psalm of ascent, this, this song for sojourning is always relevant because we also always need to look back in remembrance so that we can look forward in hope, with the result being joy in the present. So what are we to do with this in our own lives? What are we to do with this in community with one another? You know, joy really should be characteristic of the Christian life, but it often isn't. Why is that the case? I think one of the main reasons is because we've forgotten. Our memories of God's kindness, our memories of God's faithfulness are left by the wayside or sometimes just overwhelmed by the present. 
All of us face struggles. All of us face difficulties and temptations. And there will be situations and circumstances and seasons of suffering in this life. We live in a broken world. The fact that this psalm is a part of a collection of songs sung over and over again communicates that. But see, when restoration is needed, when joy is lacking, you will be tempted, just as I am, to search for joy in something else. When you encounter difficulty, when you encounter loss or or struggle, you'll be tempted to find joy in someone or something else. And our culture is built on offering you cheap jolts of joy. Whether it be entertainment or like just, you know, pursue these things, get a little bit more of this, switch jobs, switch houses, switch spouses, switch relationships, whatever it happens to be, you're looking for something and saying, just go do this. If you could just fill yourself up with these things, then, then this is where you'll find joy. No, it's over here. Look over here. Find joy over here. It's constantly calling you to these things. We get bored with the mundane if we're honest with ourselves, and so we seek something to divert us or distract us from either what's difficult or maybe just what's unexciting. But that joy that those things offer you, it never seeps into the depths of your soul. It never changes you. It's temporary, and the effects of it are temporary, leaving you looking for something else to give you another joy high, whether it be another person or another thing. See, the world tells you to seek to eliminate and alleviate all difficulty and things that cause pain at whatever cost, and it entices you to do so by purchasing joy from its little shop of trinkets. But Psalm 126 gives no hints that this is the way to restoring joy. You know, one of the most remarkable things we learn from this psalm is that laughter and joy does not exclude weeping. Laughter and joy does not exclude weeping. This means this is not a call to fake it, to pretend. This is a call to acknowledge the fact that there are real pain, real hardship, real sorrow. But even though those things are real, it doesn't mean that it will drive out the happiness of the redeemed. Why? Because we understand that real joy doesn't come about through escape, but immersing ourselves in God. See, the pattern we see in Psalm 126 is that you can have joy, you can fight for joy no matter what's going on by placing your faith in the faithfulness of God, coming to him in honest prayer, not having to come to God acting like you're joyful, acting like you're happy, coming to him honestly and seeking restoration from him. See, we need to understand something. What God does is rooted in who God is. The author recalls the fact that God has done great things for them. Why? Why has he done great things for them? Because they were worthy of it? Because they deserved it? Because he, they had done something to show God that they you know, had it better than everybody else? That they had achieved more? No, it was because God is great and God is good. Because he's full of loving kindness and mercy and grace. Because he is a faithful redeemer. But you know what? God has not just done great things for them. He has done great things for you. And this has been really helpful for me. Something I've realized over the last year or two years is just a, a lack of joy in life. Maybe you've experienced that. It's been a hard 18 months, a hard two years for a lot of different reasons. 
By God's grace, I've realized that one aspect of my lack of joy is just discontentment. Discontent with things going on in our church. Things aren't the way that I want them to be. Discontentment in my own family. Kids aren't doing the things I want them to be doing. I'm frustrated with my wife at times. Like just a discontentment in life, a discontentment in the way that I want things to be. And here's why I love God's word, his living and active word. Sharper than a two-edged sword that slices me in half and exposes me before my loving and kind God. In reading and studying this psalm and the ones that are around it, God has used his word to challenge me and convict me and begin, I think, I hope, to change me. This psalm has helped me realize something that I so often forget to remember. I so often forget to reflect and to celebrate the things that God has done. I so often forget God's kindness to me, his faithfulness to me for years and years, his kindness and faithfulness to you. I so often forget who God is, the God is that I say that I worship, that I say that I follow. And we need to do more of that as God's people to remember and celebrate so that we can be reminded that God is faithful always to his plans and to his people. Maybe things aren't the way that I want them to be right now. Maybe they're not the way that you want them to be right now, whether it be in your church or your family or your life. But you know what? You can still have joy because God is God. You can still have joy because he is faithful and he is good. When I'm struggling with joy in the midst of grief or trial, when I'm crying out for God to do a restoring work, it's been helpful for me to remember the greatest act of restoration he's ever done in my life that he's made me a new creation in Christ. There's so many places we could go in scripture, but two come to mind for me this morning. Listen to Romans chapter six, verses three through six. This is true of you if you're in Christ. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. For what reason? He says, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You were dead in your sin. You had no hope, but God rescued you and he brought you to relationship and now you're identified with Christ. And he goes on to say this, for if we have been united with him, united with Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you know Christ, he's restored you. He's changed everything for you. He's given you new life. He's united you to Jesus. Sin no longer has mastery over you. You're not enslaved to it anymore. It's the ultimate act of redemption, the ultimate act of restoration. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you're united to Jesus, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Jesus took on the wrath and punishment that you deserved. He willingly went to the cross to rescue you and restore you and to give you not small sips of joy, not little little trinkets of joy along the way, but abundant joy to give you more and more of himself. If you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, this is true for you. And I've thought about several people in our church this week, people I've seen God do this. I mean, that's one of the joys of pastoring is you kind of get a front row seat to people's lives. 
the messiness of it, the sanctification that's going on, becoming more like Jesus along the way. And I've seen God do this over and over again, redeeming people, restoring people. Where the light bulb of the gospel goes off in their head, we're reminded of grace once again, where people have crossed from death to life, where they're having hope in him again. And I know God's doing that work here, in your midst, in this community. I'm excited for others of you here this morning because some of you haven't yet experienced this redeeming and restoring grace of Jesus. But this is an invitation right here for you of God calling you to himself. In God's providence, you're here this morning. It's not by accident, not by happenstance. God wants you to be here because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to, to rescue you from your sin, to rescue you from the eternal wrath you deserve for your rebellion and make you a new creation. So if you don't yet know Christ, come to him today. Listen, friends, Jesus is the ultimate display of the mercy of God towards you. The ultimate display that we need to remember and come back to and be rooted in amidst the winds and waves of life. Joy should be characteristic of the Christian life, but it's not because we drum it up. It's not because we tell ourselves to try harder or to do better or to look ourselves in the mirror in the morning or psych ourselves up like, have some joy today. No, it comes about in and through Jesus by rooting ourselves in him. I mean, where would you honestly be apart from Christ in your life right now? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Like, where would your life have gone if Jesus hadn't saved you or rescued you? Jesus has done great things. And when we remember that, we can be glad in him. Now, I want to be careful here as we wrap up because the reality of verses four through six is not a, not a broad brushstroke over the real challenges of life. They are sowing in tears. There's weeping going on. That's not just a little trickle of a tear down the face. That's sobbing to the point where you just can't even control it anymore. Maybe that's where you find yourself right now. You're holding it together in the moment, but you find yourself regularly crying out to God, literally. From some of you, I know, just that has to be the case. For others of you, maybe that isn't you right now, but it very well might be you in the future. What I want you to see in this is that when you remember who God is and what he has done, you can have hope for what he will do. See, each moment where you need restoring joy is also an invitation. It's an invitation to get more of God, to get more of God, the one who knows how to wipe away tears and resurrect life. And our God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If he has done this restoring work in the past, why would you or I assume he will act any differently towards us in the future? Now, this doesn't mean everything's going to turn out the way that you want or the timing that you would hope for in the moment. What it means is that you can trust him in the midst of your sorrow. You can trust him in the midst of your sadness, in the midst of the difficulty and the drudgery, the maddening and the mundane of life. You can trust that our God has been faithful and he will be faithful to the end. Friends, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. This is the heart and hope of this psalm. You can have joy now because you know of the great things God has done, ultimately saving you. And you can know and believe he will restore all things in the future. All things in the future when Jesus comes again and cracks the sky and makes all things new. 
Come to him now, friends, for restoring joy. There's one other thing I want to mention before we pray. When you encounter difficulty in this life, listen to me, you aren't meant to endure it alone. This, this journey is not a solo endeavor where you're just out there on your own, tracking along. Remember what this psalm is. It was a song sung collectively God's, by God's people as they journeyed together. We too are on a journey. We're not on this solo trek, but a communal trek to the new city where there will be no more weeping and there'll be no more sadness because there'll be no more sin or sickness or death. So now as fellow travelers along the way, we can help one another to not grumble, but to groan with hope. And we can do this by reminding one another of who God is and what he's done and celebrate that, like really celebrate it. It's one of the reasons it's so important to gather together each week, to have a room full of people that we can come honestly before, we can bring all of our laments and we can place them at the feet of Jesus in the company of Jesus' people, helping one another to celebrate Listen, not in spite of your suffering, not in spite of your challenges, but in the midst of them. The best time to gather with God's people isn't when you feel like it, when everything's going great in your life. It's the opposite. When you're thinking, man, I don't know if I even have faith right now. I don't know if I have joy right now. I don't even know if I can get myself here this morning. Like, jump in the car, buckle yourself in, and get over here. Because you need to be around this group of people that even if you feel like you can't sing the words that are on the screen, there's somebody next to you who can. And they're singing those things over you. Sometimes your faith is bolstered by somebody else's. When you show up on Sunday, it isn't just for you. It's for the people around you. So come, come be a community together to sing these songs of praise together. Not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. Encourage one another, challenge one another, help one another to remember the faithfulness of God. Maybe there's somebody here this morning or that isn't here this morning. Maybe shoot him a text today, make a phone call, say, I missed you. How can I pray for you? Let me remind you of God's goodness and grace in your life. And let's not forget having joy in the midst of difficulty, genuine joy that's rooted in the character and nature of God, and it testifies to our neighbors, it testifies to the nations. It enables them to see and know who our God is, a God who redeems and a God who restores. What might God do in us? What might he do through us if we truly journeyed together fighting for genuine joy? May we be a people who remember who God is, who remember what he's done, and because of that, together declare the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Let's pray. Oh, restoring and redeeming God, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you, Father, for always being faithful, even when we are not. I pray that you'd help us now to look back in remembrance and forward in hope so that we can have joy in the presence. God, would you forgive us for our grumbling? Will you forgive us for not trusting you, for trying to find joy in other places, people, or things? Instead, God, help us to set our gaze on Jesus, our Redeemer, who is faithful and true, and who will come again to make all things new. Help us help one another run the race that's set before us and to fight for joy together along the way. And God, we pray that as we do that, that our neighbors would see that we have a hope, a rock-solid foundation in Christ, and that you would call them to yourself as well. We thank you for your mercy and grace, and we thank you for Jesus, and we pray all this in his name. 
Amen.